2,863 imported cases. Another 39 patients with COVID have died. A poll by almost 18 million Twitter users has shown that a majority want the platform's owner, Elon Musk, to quit as its CEO. 57% voted in favour. Here's the BBC's Zoe Kleinman. Elon Musk's silence is uncharacteristic. He's usually a prolific presence on the platform he now owns. It probably won't be long before he has something to say. What we do know is that he's previously abided by the results of polls. He even put to the vote whether he should buy Twitter in the first place earlier this year. Eventually, he did buy the network for £38 billion and made himself the boss. Mr Musk's leadership so far has proved controversial, with huge changes to both staff and policies, as well as some unexpected decisions about moderation and banned accounts. But while he's been busy tweeting, shares in his other firm, Tesla, have nosedived in value, and investors in that company fear it's because he's distracted. European Union energy ministers have ended weeks of negotiations by agreeing on a price cap for natural gas across the bloc. It's to be set at €180 Euros per megawatt hour. Kadri Simpson is the bloc's energy commissioner. Today's agreement clearly signals that Europe is not prepared to pay any price for gas and that it is able to act united to ensure its energy security. And we will continue our work to reduce our dependence on Russian gas and to speed up the deployment of renewable energy. Germany eventually backed the arrangement despite concerns about its impact on Europe's ability to secure gas supplies in price-competitive global markets. Europe's benchmark price for natural gas delivered via pipeline was trading at just under €112 per megawatt hour on Monday. And that's the news from RTHK. International station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Good morning. It's 8.05 in Hong Kong, and I'm Andrew Work, and this is Money Talk. Uh, looking across uh, the world, we see the Europeans agreed to a deal to cap the price of gas in Europe. They're calling it a dynamic cap, maybe taking lessons from a dynamic zero-COVID policy. Uh, the so-called cap is 35 euros higher than recent prices, suggesting it will protect against spikes rather than steadily push prices down. Dynamic means the cap can be waived under certain conditions. Gas is down over 5% on the news, and the Russian government is predictably and vocally not impressed. And in today's episode of Everyone Hates Tech, the European Union's antitrust body moved towards imposing an almost 12 billion US dollar fine on Meta as it seemed to object to Facebook connecting its social network to Facebook Marketplace, its e-commerce platform. It seems the get-the-eyeballs-then-monetize memo didn't reach their office. A Paris court fined Apple a million euros for App Store practices, and American regulators were also down on tech, finding the maker of Fortnite, uh, Epic Games, $520 million for allegedly invading children's privacy and quote-unquote tricking players into making unintended purchases. Even Elon Musk was told by Twitter followers to go after he put the question to them on the platform. Over 57% voted for him to leave. Asia down, Europe up, North America down. And it was a roller coaster ride in the markets yesterday. We've got our market roundup coming, and then we will get into the highs and lows and what's around the corner uh, in the markets to come with our Money Talk Straight Talkers. We're going to welcome Andrew Skyfighter Sullivan, Managing Director at Outset Global, and John Schofield, Managing Director at Tempest Investment. 
Later, we'll have The View from Japan with Nick Smith, who's a Japan strategist at CLSA. Uh, remember, you can get in touch with us. Email us, moneytalk at rthk.hk. Facebook uh, is Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3 and Twitter at Money Talk Radio 3. So, people, prepare yourselves, like the woman says, for Money Talk. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. All right, time to take this roller coaster out of the loading bay and climb to our first big drop, the North American markets. Amazon led the downward slide, losing 3% yesterday, capping a miserable year that has seen it drop 45%. NASDAQ lost 1.5% and was trailed at its decline by the S&P down 0.9% and the Dowdy Dow was down 0.5%. The TSX in Toronto dropped 0.8% as tech stocks and base metals were both down. Taking this ride up again, the Europeans and Brits were the star performers of the day with the stock 600, FTSE 100, DAX and CAC all in positive territory. The stocks was up 0.3% and others 0.4%. Finland's Fordham was a top performer, up 6% on the announcement that it was selling shares in Uniper to the German government. Uniper shares were also up as the German government moves to acquire and bail out the struggling gas importer and gain more control over the German energy market. By contrast, Volkswagen dropped 10.6%. Uh, investors apparently unhappy that CEO Oliver Bloom would be leading both Volkswagen and Porsche for the long term. We hit the top and then we're going to go down again. It seems the pro-growth messaging from the Central Economic Work Conference in China failed to impress local traders. China stocks fell with the Shanghai Composite taking the hardest hit down almost 2% and the Shenzhen Bourse fell 1.5% and Hong Kong, Friday's golden child, dropped to close 0.75% down on the day. Sun Hankai uh, was one to watch. It dropped almost 5%. The Nikkei shed 1.5% and the Kospi was down 0.33%. Up and down, Brent crude is up 1.63% while natural gas is down almost 12% in tandem with announcements about European plans to cap the price of gas. If you're holding positions in gas, watch that very carefully. Oil, by contrast, was buoyed by talk of China opening up and the U.S. Strategic Reserve is back in the buying game aiming to replenish its reserves after drawing down earlier this year. Those base metals that dropped, pulling the TSX down with it, included gold, silver, copper, platinum, and palladium, with the last dropping 3%. Chip shortages and the move to EVs have not been kind to the metal used in catalytic converters for internal combustion automobiles. Looking at currencies, uh, the U.S. dollar had a down day against the euro, the British pound, and the Singapore dollar, but it gained against the Chinese yuan and Japanese yen. Uh, the Canadian dollar was up with oil and the expectation that China's opening could boost demand for natural resources. Uh, and crypto is having another bad day after a good weekend. Bitcoin and Ether are both down 2%-ish. Having a quick look at the uh, what's up ahead, the Hong Kong Futures Index. Uh, the Hong Kong Futures Index is uh, looking down today, so keep an eye out for that. And the ASX in Australia is already on the downswing. And that is your market for today on Money Talk. And uh, welcome to Money Talk. We'd like to welcome our guest today who are going to tell us what is going on out there. John Schofield, Managing Director, Tempest Investment. Welcome to the show. Yes, hello. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director of Outset Global, is joining us as well. Good to have you on. Good morning. 
All right, gentlemen, uh, there's a lot going on out there. I mean, the headlines were a lot about Europe and this gas cap, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting that that is not going to be such a big impact on this part of the world. What are you guys looking at for, for what's happening in, in, uh, in maybe in Asia? And then we can narrow it down to local. Yes, I think the European uh, gas cap uh, is quite interesting uh, in, a, in a sort of general sense because it shows that how governments are really starting gradually to get a grip on... Uh, these various um, uh, inflation issues, market um, disruptions, uh, and so on. I mean, my read, the actual thing itself is probably not similar to a um, circuit breaker in the futures markets, which uh, we're, we're very familiar with. Um, in fact, the, the cap, you know, gas prices have already come down and uh, come down a long way, although it's remained volatile. Um, so I think it will. Um, you know, be rarely used, but the fact that, that you have that um, that mechanism in place is, is, is helping to stabilize the markets. And um, yeah, the markets uh, didn't in, seem to like it. In <laughs> I think the other thing is, I mean, for for a lot of us in Hong Kong, I mean, our local energy prices are reasonably capped. We're not particularly exposed to petrol prices, um, and I think people are far more worried about or, or concerned about the uh, the COVID in China and the reopening of the Hong Kong border. Uh, with China, which obviously a lot of people are looking forward to, to being able to go and see relatives and the such like, uh, but also wondering, you know, does that mean we get another wave of COVID in Hong Kong and what does it mean to retail and how many people are likely to come across the border? Yeah, and I mean, what, what, uh, and how does that impact on markets? Like, uh, where, where do you see certain sectors being impacted by that in a good or bad way as China opens up? Well, historically, I think obviously retail and the Macau names would have done well. Um, but, I mean, it, it's difficult to see how many people, or, or the interesting thing will be to see how many people out of China are, are willing to travel and able to travel. Mm-hmm. And, and, and travel over here and, and, you know, get over here and get retail and our restaurants uh, and our restaurants and hotels back in action. Exactly, yeah. Mm. Um, and how about Macau? I mean, Macau, there was some big news over the last couple of days. The Macau government's uh, offered to extend the licenses of the, the big six operators for another 10 years, but they're kind of uh, they're, they're, they're mixing it up a little bit, forcing them to put less into license fees and more into non-gambling investment. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's a positive for Macau's uh, economic development. Total dependence on, uh, on gambling is... Uh, is obviously not not a terribly healthy thing unless you you know unless you're well even Las Vegas for example is is a huge entertainment center as well so I think that's uh, long term that's very very positive and the fact that all these companies are willing to make these uh, commitments to invest so heavily is um, is also good news um, but in the short term of course we're asking the question when are people going to be able to go to Macau freely mm-hmm. in order to take advantage of these things so there's a mismatch between uh, the gov- Macau government so far as you know hard line at, should I say on, on, on COVID uh, yeah. but, but I mean, clearly uh, that's going to change I think have, have we been here before? I mean, I seem to remember that was the plan when, they, when the cow first went mm. into its its new phase. Uh, uh, you know, they they brought in all kinds of stuff, and Cir- Cirque du Soleil eventually bowed out because it just wasn't making mm. any money. I mean, uh, you know, are we going to have a repeat of that where everybody piled money into non gambling investments, and then everyone said, "Nah, forget it, just go for the gambling." Well, I think that the problem is it's it, it's illustrative of the fact that uh, China has a tendency to switch policy without consultation. Uh, and that's going to make it very difficult getting investor confidence back in any 
policy directions at the moment is going to be difficult. Um, and especially when you know, a lot of investors are looking at other overseas markets as being potentially more advantage. Certainly, you know, there's very little incentive for American investors to look into Asia um, because the yield isn't there and their, their own domestic economy has been doing well. Although, you know, as you were mentioning in the, in the early rundown, the threat is that uh, you know, we're, we're seeing highs and recession is zooming. Mm-hmm. And uh, now you say not Asia, but I mean, are some parts of Asia going to benefit from a shift out of China? There's been a lot of talk of that as supply chains are changing, industrial production is, is moving to places like Vietnam. Um, I mean, India, endless potential, mm-hmm. never realized, sometimes realized. <laughs> Maybe that's a bit harsh. But, but what about other, other yeah. destinations in Asia? Yeah, well, I mean, look at India. Um, let, let's say the stock market performance in, in India is, is stellar. I mean, this is, um, or has, you know, relatively stellar, I should say. Um, all all through this period, and there's no doubt that India is the coming um, economic power, and um, the prospects for growth there, because you still have a, a, a population which is, uh, yeah, you know, which is a low low um, low uh, per capita income, but growing fast. So so the potential for uh, investors in India is. Going forward on a long-term basis is is much great is greater than China in my view. Did you pick India at the, at the end of last year as you looked forward to twenty twenty two, or did it come as a bit of a surprise? Um, yeah, I don't think we were particularly focused on on uh, India at that time, um, but uh, you know it's just a question of mon- seeing how things have evolved. Um, I mean, you never hear about the COVID problem in India. Um, for example, so so um, it's been something of a safe haven as well. And I think, I mean, the, one of the problems for China is that certainly when we had the mm. tariffs pre-COVID, a lot of those businesses were already looking to move and they have moved. Um, and that's going to make it difficult for China coming out now that it's mm. done this switch, that a lot of those... I mean, we're not going to see massive changes to supply chains, but changes have happened in a number of countries, as you were mentioning, like Vietnam, Cambodia, certainly Indonesia has done very well, um, have benefited and will look to continue to build on that, just as China has done in the past. And, and given that, we're, as you guys look forward to 2023, what are, your, what, are some of the, what are some of the sectors or the countries that you think have a lot of potential that you've particularly got your eye on? Yeah, I would say, well, we, we're going to have uh, the, the first half uh, of this year, uh, no, sorry, next year globally is going to be very difficult. I think we're seeing the tail end of this uh, this bear market. So I think we've got to look to the second half really once, um, you know, hopefully the interest rate, the Fed uh, slows or stops uh, raising interest rates and we have some kind of equilibrium between the various uh, asset classes. Um, and then, um, you know, then invested. But I would still, I would bet, um, I would bet on, continue to bet on India. Um, I think Japan is well worth a look as well. Yeah, I think uh, Japan, certainly you've got, you know, the, the likelihood Kuroda steps down and we could see a change in monetary policy there, which would, could be very advantageous for that country. Um, and there's still going to be, a, a, you know, an opportunity within China, but I think the difficulty in China is going to be that investors are going to make sh- need to make sure that their investments are aligned with the the government's uh, strategy and policy intentions, mm-hmm. um, and that's not always going to be clear, unfortunately. 
Yeah, we had the Central Work Conference. There was also the deal done between the uh, the U.S. and China on accounting standards for uh, mm-hmm. Chinese companies that are listed in the United States. Uh, do you think that's going to give investors more encouragement or, or more confidence in investing in Chinese companies over the next couple of years? I think for those investors that are already invested in China and aware of the local situations, probably yes. I think for a lot of new investors, there's still this overhang about the weaponization of the US dollar and US investment in China. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's going to, you know, whilst there are better opportunities elsewhere, people will, will, will put that on the back burner. But I think, uh, you know, if the US goes into a recession, as Europe goes into a recession, then a lot of these Chinese companies and Asian companies in general are going to look a lot more attractive. And do you guys? It sounds like you guys want to play defense in 2023, at least at least for the first half. Um, do you kind of have your sectors that you you see as a, a little more recession proof? You know, not maybe break of runaway growth, but good defensive positions. Well, I still think the you know as as China's pivoting out of zero COVID, then I still think that uh, consumption names are going to do well. The, the crucial thing here, really, though, is having undermined the confidence in the property sector, whether they can rebuild that because I think that's going to be key. It's kind of a big deal in the Chinese economy, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So who, who, do, you, who do you like uh, for a defensive position? Um, well, I think it's, uh, you know, on a, on a, on a global basis, we, we've got the, the uh, value versus, um, versus growth. I think value is, is certainly through this next uh, six months is going to be, uh, is going to be much more resilient. Um, we haven't re- yet seen the... I, I don't think we've seen the final uh, sort of sell-off in, in, in tech generally. Um, so I would, I would stick with that, that balance. But, yeah, we have to, have to main, uh, keep a large cash allocation, I think. Try and benefit from these, you know, interest rates. We should be starting to get uh, 4 or 5% returns just on, on cash for the... And I, I mean, you've, you raised the issue of tech. Tech has been, you know, mm-hmm. certainly in the last 24 hours, hard mm-hmm. and set upon by regulators uh, in the West, mm-hmm. both in the U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. and Europe. Uh, maybe kind of not not similar, but have echoes mm-hmm. to what happened in China over the last couple of years. Um, when you think about tech companies, uh, do you see the the main threats of them being political and regulatory, or or consumer issues? Yeah, I think it's inevitable that they would come under. Regulative scrutiny again. This has actually been going on for some years. It's just resurfaced recently. Um, um, but uh, overall, I mean, big tech, large tech. Um, you know, there's another theme here where, you know, in the the, the life cycle of of the sector and and individual companies, they're, they're starting to become mature and X uh, certainly X X X rapid growth. So. They have to adjust their their business models and so on to become more uh, cash flow uh, oriented. I think there's still going to be opportunities in the niche and the startup areas as people refine these things. And uh, and as John was just saying, I mean, because you've got the regulators looking at the sector very closely, the uh, the opportunities for M and A that we saw in the past are probably uh, not so good. But that does allow you know good niche development companies to come through. Excellent. And uh, so we've got tech. Uh, any any other sectors before we close out the segment here, guys, that uh, are going to work well? Well, I think, I mean, I, I still think consumption. I mean, as people get over COVID, as people are allowed to travel again, 
Um, and I think, obviously, outward-bound travel from, from Hong Kong is going to be uh, high on the agenda for a lot of people that have been stymied by the COVID quarantine regulations in the past. So the airlines um, and certainly the international hotels, probably. All right, there we have it. We have our, our picks of the days. You guys have uh, filled up the uh, Admiralty studio with your bodies and you filled up the airwaves with your vision. Thank you very much, John Schofield, Managing Director, Tempest Investment, and Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director of Outside Global, today on Money Talk. All right, back on Money Talk. Today's Tuesday, and that means the view from Japan. And we were getting into it uh, a little bit with our last guests, but we'd also like to welcome now uh, all the way from Japan, Nick Smith, the Japan strategist with CLSA. Konnichiwa. Good morning to you. Ohio. Um, uh, Nick, uh, a little bit of news coming out of Japan. I think people are looking at, like the rest of the world, they're looking at interest rates. Our last guests raised the issue of interest rates in Japan, and uh, we have an outgoing governor of the Bank of Japan, right? We certainly have, yeah. It was a, um, a great experiment. It was an interesting idea. It absolutely didn't work. So uh, um, I think he told us that uh, we'd get uh, asset price inflation. Of course, we didn't. We got uh, multiple compression for, um, for the stock market, for example. Um, companies didn't uh, take cash and put it to work instead. Um, the the banks at the start of this time were lending out only 71% of their deposits. Uh, now they're, they're lending out 63 uh, percentage of companies with uh, net cash of over 20% of equities has gone up 5 percentage points during his time to 40% of uh, non-financial. So the place is awash with cash and is not putting it to, uh, to work. So great idea, but now the, uh, the Bank of Japan owns half the bond market with bond holdings uh, equivalent to uh, 100% of GDP. Uh, I, I think you stop uh, the quantitative easing, not because uh, you need to um, to rein in inflation, but just the Bank of Japan's got to stop doing dumb things. Wow, and is, it, is that why Kuroda's on his way out? Is it because this, this experiment has just not worked? Uh, no, Kuroda's been doing the, uh, the job for, um, for 10 years. That's longer than any BOJ governor in history. Uh, but uh, I, I think he's, um, he's tired. He's, uh, um, he's not as young as he once was. And, um, and so it's, it's time for somebody new. But I think time for somebody new, this is the only point in the cycle where uh, the uh, elected officials can um, get involved in the process. And I think the, uh, the problem is extremely high that... Um, the uh, replacement for Corrado is going to be somebody who's a lot more, uh, a lot more hawkish. Yeah, and why don't we have visibility on that yet? How long, how long do we wait until we start to get a, a, an idea of what the post-Corrado era is going to look like in Japan? Yeah, experience doesn't help that much with this. It's, uh, it's been quite variable, and uh, I've heard people say, well, it'll be decided in January. I said, heard some people say it'll be as, uh, as late as uh, February, but... Um, and obviously, considering the strength of the uh, the government's majority, um, it, it should be uh, fairly uh, fairly simple what the uh, the prime minister decides uh, can get rammed through Parliament. And I doubt that um, the the opposition would uh, present much opposition to uh, to this. So I think that the main reason that the support rate for the prime minister is absolutely collapsing at the moment, and there's one over the weekend with support rate of only 25 percent. The reason it's collapsing is because of uh, frustration about inflation. But, you know, I think that the main point is 
without having any plan whatsoever for, uh, for getting uh, wages up. Yeah. And, and yeah, so I mean, wages and I mean, but but we have heard from Japanese companies this year, uh, record bonuses apparently are going to a record rise in bonuses, which is not the same thing. But this is the highest rise in planned bonuses since the 1970s, I think, up 11 percent, um, depending on which sector you're looking at higher in services, um, but also high in manufacturing. Well, I mean, Japanese companies seem to be well cashed up. They're giving it away to employees. What impact is that going to have? Well, I think you put your, your, your finger on the, uh, the main point there. If I remember, there was uh, uh, Nikkei's uh, Sunday newspaper saying 9.7 cents uh, um, for, for the whole lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it did say within that, uh, that only takes us back to where we were uh, a few years ago. Um, I would have thought that that's uh, some sign that when when our guys go out and, uh, and talk to companies, the companies say, we're not going to uh, to big, give big rises in uh, in wages, uh, and, and people present that to me as if it's uh, as if it's gospel. And of course, my response is, "What do you expect them to say ahead of a uh, a negotiation?" <laughs> no one says, "Yeah, we're going to we're going to sort of put our hands up and uh, and give way on this." Right. But I, I think the chances are that uh, Japan's got an unbelievably tight uh, labour market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with the shrinking population, that's only going from, from bad to worse. It's accelerating. Uh, so, in which case, they're going to have to give much bigger um, wage increases in, in Shinto in the, uh, the spring wage negotiation. So I think the the rise in um, in winter bonuses is just an indication of uh, of their willingness to uh, to raise wages or lose their people. Sure. So you're cashed up. Your employees know it. Uh, makes sense. They're going to ask for uh, bigger bonuses. Uh, eventually wages, but uh, who else wants to get their hands on that money? I mean, I, I've seen a headline saying that with all these cashed-up companies, uh, they could be attractive uh, targets for acquisition from outsiders. Well, that's been the issue. So over the last five years, Japan's already grown to be the world's second-largest market for, uh, for activism. And so uh, private equity uh, is unlikely to go hostile, but uh, they can certainly take it uh, handed on from, uh, from an activist position. Um, so yes, I think uh, the, the cashed-up trading below book companies tend to be the uh, the smaller companies these days. But uh, but certainly they've got uh, targets on their backs and uh, and their understanding that they need to uh, either give some back to shareholders as, uh, as share buybacks or increase dividends, or uh, they're in danger of getting taken over. If they get taken over, um, that means that management is likely to be lined up and shot. Well, well, you know, I know, I know money talk. Uh, we've got some, some heavy hitters in here that maybe they're turning their eye to Japan. So uh, you're giving them the goods. Thank you very much. Nick Smith, Japan strategist with CLSA here on Money Talk. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. All right, that's it for the guest today. I'm going to give you guys a little uh, check on what's happening out there in the world as we go. It looks like the the Nikkei has been up and down and up and down, so it might be a bit of a bumpy ride there today. Keep a close eye on it. Cosby's down. ASX in Australia, down. And as I said earlier, the your futures index uh, for Hong, the Hang Seng is uh, showing, showing red. And Bitcoin and Ether are also trending down. Tomorrow on uh, Money Talk, we got our view from America, but we're also going to have Alicia Garcia Herrero from NetTixis, an old friend, and uh, Hao Hong from Grow Investment Group, joining Barry Wood, our RTHK correspondent from Washington. Coming up next after the news, we got Danny Giddings and Ada Wong on Back Chat. As always, I'd like to thank my producer, Christy Lai, and our sound man today, Tsang Wing Ming, who is on the soundboard. 
Um, looking at the weather today, oh, it looks good. Dry with sunny periods, max temperature around 19 degrees, which I quite like. Currently, it is 15 degrees Celsius. It's 66% humidity. And this has been Money Talk. The time is now 8.30, and now the news with Tom Hardy. A patient's advocate has welcomed government plans to shift the focus of health care from treatment to prevention and promote the concept of a family doctor. The plan also includes a so-called co-care scheme to subsidize patients with hypertension or diabetes to get treated in the private sector. Tim Pang from the Society for Community Organization questioned why the government targeted specific illnesses rather than overall health. In order to have an overall enhancement of health, the government should also focus on other areas instead of the co-care scheme for disease prevention. And also for this co-care scheme, I think if they ask the grassroots to pay at least half of the treatment fees, it would be too much for the grassroots. So for the financial difficulty people, help them have to increase the level of subsidy. The government has proposed setting up a special office to regulate crowdfunding. Most campaigns would have to apply to it for permission to raise funds. The public has been given three months to respond to the proposals, as Natalie Ching reports. The government says some of the more popular online crowdfunding activities pose risks to public interest and safety, and regulation can prevent people from engaging in fraudulent activities or jeopardizing national security. To achieve this, it's proposed setting up a crowdfunding affairs office to vet applications. Factors such as the would-be crowdfunder's honesty, reputation and reliability would be considered, along with the risks brought about by the activity to public interest and safety. But the new regulations won't apply to commercial fundraising activities in the market or activities widely recognized by society, as well as sudden charitable projects. The MTR Corporation has announced it will provide overnight train services on Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, except on the Airport Express and Disneyland Resort lines. Services on the Island Line, Chunwan Line, Kuntong Line and East Rail Line will be stepped up from 8pm on both dates. Overnight festive services were suspended for the last two years due to the pandemic. The corporation added that it will run more trains starting in the afternoon on Thursday, the winter solstice, one of the most celebrated Chinese festivals. President Putin has held talks with his ally, the Belarusian leader Alexander Lukashenko, on his first visit to Minsk in more than three years. It comes amid concerns that Russia may be planning to attack Kiev from Belarus, as it did ten months ago. The Russian leader said he was only focusing on bilateral ties. I would like to say that back in 2021, we made real headway in developing our trade and economic ties, our trade turnover, and I would like to emphasize again that this was before the special military operation. Back in 2021, our trade increased by one-third. In Moscow, Mr. Putin's spokesman dismissed reports that he intended to pressure Mr. Lukashenko into joining the war against Ukraine. Ukraine's top general, Valery Zeluzhny, said last week Russia was preparing 200,000 fresh troops for a major offensive that could come from the east, south, or even from Belarus as early as January, but more likely in the spring. A poll by almost 18 million Twitter users has shown that a majority want the platform's owner, Elon Musk, to quit as its CEO. 57% voted in favor. Here's the BBC's Zoe Kleinman. 
Elon Musk's silence is uncharacteristic. He's usually a prolific presence on the platform he now owns. It probably won't be long before he has something to say. What we do know is that he's previously abided by the results of polls. He even put to the vote whether he should buy Twitter in the first place earlier this year. Eventually, he did buy the network for £38 billion and made himself the boss. Mr Musk's leadership so far has proved controversial, with huge changes to both staff and policies, as well as some unexpected decisions about moderation and banned accounts. But while he's been busy tweeting, shares in his other firm, 